I'm not superstitious, but I'm I am a little stitious. Unbelievable. <laughs> Get some facts and come back and see. The fact that I am an Olympian already. What is this? You read some obscure passage and then pretend you, you pawn it off as your own. I saw that as your own idea, just to impress some girls, embarrass my friend. Brooksy, if I want to explain it to you, I would. See, the sad thing about a guy like you is, in 50 years, you're gonna start doing some thinking on your own, and you're gonna come up with the fact that there are two certain. The fact that I am an Olympian, no matter what is said. Are you high? It ain't about that. I'm high on Kaboom. Sha -la 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 Pressure. Are you high? It's like the hokey pokey. You put your right foot in. Yeah. You take your right foot out. You put your right foot in. You shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. Boom. <laughs> that's what that's all about, yeah. Jay. Yo, I had to wait till my dad fell asleep so I could steal his keys. Ready? I was born. You hate to have too much time to stew in your own juices. I'm Ron Swanson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cedar Skier podcast here on cedarskier.com, Shovel Lake Public Radio. I'm your host, Ryan Cedarquist, coming to you live. All right, well, as always, the United States Olympic Trials Track and Field, the greatest track and field event. It has not been short on drama at all this year. In fact, uh, I always try every year. My wife and I do our thing where we um, we play the Let's Run.com $200,000 contest. It's free to enter. If you pick uh, perfectly first, second, and third for every single event, you win two hundred grand. Of course, no one's ever done that. Um, and then of course there's, and there's hundreds of, or actually this year, I think there's 1900 people competing in the contest. So, um, it's free. You just log in, you choose your, your first, second, third for every event. My wife and I always compete against each other and, and I, I am always terrible at it. My strategy had been in the past. They have this for NCAA and USATF stuff too. So there's usually four or five of these contests every year, maybe a little more. Uh, my strategy used to be, you know, try to pick who I actually thought was going to win. That did not ever work. I would say I usually ended up in about the 50th percentile, uh, maybe worse. Uh, there, there's been a maybe one or two days, individual days, where, you know, I went to check and I was, you know, in the top 40 or 50 or something and I felt pretty special. Uh, but that's pretty rare. It, it, lately, though, my strategy has been try to pick very unconventionally thinking, hey, I do terrible anyway, but I'm going to go this route. If if my, I'm right, I'll be the only person who's right kind of a thing. But the, And with the Olympic trials, that's actually not a bad strategy because there's always so much unexpected drama. This is what makes it so great. So I don't know if you've been watching the trials. Uh, on our last show, I really ripped NBC for making it feel like The Bachelor sometimes and American Idol meets The Bachelor meets track and field. I still feel that way, <laughs> generally speaking. But I will give them some credit for giving us a few stories, at least, that I find to be pretty fascinating. And I think the the last one that I saw was in the women's 100 hurdles. At the last Olympic trials, we had the top four athletes in the world competing in that event. Of course, that's a, that's a recipe for disaster, right? You only get the top three are going to go to the Olympics. Everyone else is gone. So we're going to literally have the fourth best uh, person in that event in the world not make our team. That was Kenny Harrison in 2016. And then a couple weeks afterwards, she breaks the world record in her event. So she's a world record holder and not an Olympian. And the next year, she won the Worlds, 2017. And then in 2019, she won Worlds again. From 2017, 2018, 2019, and wait, 17, 18, 19. I thought she was a four-time U.S. champ in a row. Maybe this was her fourth that she then won, 2021, because, of course, they didn't have anything in 2020. Anyway, a few days ago, she won the Olympic trials. And I just thought it was crazy that Right before that race, she's a two-time world champion and a world record holder, and she's not an Olympian. Just kind of thinking about the dichotomy that can exist 
Like, what's the greatest athlete who's not an Olympian? Uh, and that there's a few of those. And, and Donovan Brazier had the epic collapse in the 800. Not sure if you were watching that, but now he's sitting in a similar position where he broke Jim Ryan's 55-year-old U20 and NCAA record in the Outdoor 800. He is the American record holder in the Outdoor 800. He's a 2019 world champion, and he is 0 for 2 in Olympic Games. Oh, I'm sorry, Olympic trials. I mean, so essentially you've got the greatest 800-meter talent in American history has never even made it to the Olympic Games. And you look at Jim Ryan, who I think might have been the most talented overall middle-distance runner, maybe in the world's history, and his thing was making three Olympics, right? 64, 68, 72, I think, and then falling short for, for one reason or another. Um, and even flying short, I think, was he the silver medalist in 68 in Mexico City, even though he's the heavy favorite? And then 72, he got bounced in the rounds because he fell. And he probably, he should have been reinstated, really. So Ryan, we kind of look at as, you know, couldn't, couldn't claim Olympic gold. He was a world record holder at 18. Um, and there's certainly some some tragedy there. But Man, what if Jim Ryan had never even made it to the Olympics? That's a little bit what we're looking at with Donovan Donovan Brazier. So this is the thing that I I think entices me the most about the Olympics. The stories within them are just so fascinating and they're kind of so endless. Did you know out there listeners that there are Olympic historians and and people the archivists who their full-time job is actually studying Olympic Games history. Um, I was kind of thinking that was maybe more of, I mean, I guess it's kind of a niche field, but I i went to the website and was like, man, I wonder if this is something I could do. Like, I definitely would enjoy doing it, just uncovering the stories and the history, keeping track of those records, uh, creating materials. And, you know, they have an Olympic history museum and everything, and there's a website and archives and everything, but it's it's like there's people who have their PhDs studying and their dissertations are on like Olympic movements and his- historical things. So I was like, whoa, this is this is like way, way over over what I thought it would be. Yeah, let's put it that way, right? You don't you don't you're not like an Olympic fan and then try to become that. It's like the same thing as being like a Civil War historian. Like very few in the world get to do this. <laughs> um, but anyway, when I was a kid growing up, I we had a VHS that was it was um one of the original Olympiad documentary things that was made and it had, you know, some of the great winners, some of the great losers. And you, you saw just how incredible the journey, the journeys were for many of these athletes, especially over that World War II barrier. You had some people who were, you know, 23, 24 and 36, and then they missed two straight Olympic games. And, and, you know, there were some that came back and it's hard enough it's hard enough, in my opinion, when you've got the the four-year gap. The four-year gap between all these Olympic Games really just, uh, if, if you've experienced tragedy, you've got to wait four more years, right? And and it's just kind of mind-boggling. The, the level of training and the level of dedication that these athletes have to have, it's it's incredible. So uh, the, the, the having the war in there just adds to it because it's like, man, not only did they go to war— which is a, a story in itself. But then, um, you know, everything's on hold and you don't, there's uncertainty. Anyway, we'll get to that because today we're going to talk about two athletes whose athletic careers were thrust right into World War II. But what I'm trying to get at is also a build up to one of the more dramatic things I think that happened at the Olympic trials. And that was just last night in the women's steeplechase. We had an athlete who has been trying, I didn't realize the depth of her comeback here. Leah Fallon, I believe is her name. Let's go check this out. Where is it? Yeah, Leah Fallon on Athletics Club. So really, really rough. Here's what happened. Basically, um, Leah Fallon in 2015, fresh out of Michigan State, she was locked in a battle with Colleen Quigley for the third spot in the world championship team. She slipped and fell in the final water jump. Okay. A year later, she was again third heading into the final water jump, but racing on a torn, so that's the Olympic trials, 2016, racing on a torn plantar fascia, landed awkwardly, and faded to last place. 
The plantar fascia was beginning of two years of injury hell, and this is from Let's Run.com, by the way, I'm reading this, that sent Fallon out to the NorCal Distance Project in Sacramento and then back to college coach Walt Drenth in Michigan. Finally, in 2018, Fallon began working with Dathan Ritzenheim, whom she followed to Boulder as a member of the On Athletics Club when it launched last year. Ritzenheim has slowly built up Fallon over the last three years, and when she ran 9.23 in Sunday's prelims, her fastest time since 2016, Fallon was back to her best. And so what happened in the last in the race last night, <clears throat> she was in the group of three, really when Quigley and <clears throat> um, Emma Coburn, the two heavy, heavy favorites, heavy, heavy favorites in this event, when they kind of started making their move to separate from the pack, Leah, Fall- Leah Fallon went with them and with two laps to go, tripped somehow and fell completely. And so at this point, they had kind of gapped fourth, fifth, sixth, and the whole rest of the group. Well, she falls and um, tries to regroup herself. And when she, when she gets up, the entire rest of the, the chase group has now caught, caught her. And so she does collect herself and stays in the third, fourth position. She was running with um, the eventual third place winner, Val Constant, who kind of has an interesting story in of herself works a full-time job and you know had never finished island fifth in ncaa's had never run at a usa championships until this week that's just kind of crazy right she's coached by her college coaches mark wetmore heather burrows so val val constian constian would eventually win but but um fallon is right with constian they're running these two laps and it wasn't until about 200 to go um, that she got dropped again. And it kind of happened at the last water jump, apparently. The TV f- cameras did not cover the race, so even though I watched it, they didn't cover that part of the race. They were just focusing on Coburn Frerichs, who had really gapped the next part of the field, which was kind of dumb, too. It's like everyone knew going into this race it was going to be about who got third. Frerichs and Coburn were heavy, heavy favorites for 1-2. They're they're a, in a league of their own, a class of their own. So who was going to get third was a was a big toss-up, but the story behind Fallon was, was there. So I'm shocked that the cameras didn't really kind of focus in on her. But uh, regardless, <clears throat> that's sort of what happened. And so now you see Leah Fallon. She's kind of entering into that. Um, club that you don't really want to be a part of where Olympic tragedy tends is kind of the the theme of your story. Uh, and, and there's many great, great athletes who that has become their legacy. Uh, and and that, that is fascinating with the Olympics. That's why this meet is so great. You have to, you could be the best in the world. And, sh- and if you don't show up for your prelims, for your quarters, for your semis and make it to the finals, and then the finals, you're not an Olympian. You're not going. And uh, um, that's unique about our our nation. And that's why, you know, we have Donovan Brazier, who, like I started the show talking about, he, uh, maybe he's injured. doesn't really matter, right? He's, he would be a hands down selection by criteria and by, um, this was Nordic skiing, right? And we were using the discernment. What, what do they call, uh, discretion, right? Discretion and criteria, from past results, Brazier would have already been a lock for this pick. He's the number one 800-meter runner in the world and has been for two and a half years at least, straight. And, you know, we select our team and track by, you got to show up at the trials and place top three. Sorry, doesn't matter. And that's what makes this almost an Olympics in and of itself because your prior merits really don't matter at all. So I think that's great. You know, we had, um, I had a conversation with Jim Galanis about, Olympic trials, and I'll play, I'll probably play it here on an upcoming podcast. But you know, essentially, the gist of us talking about how do you, what's the best way of choosing, choosing a team, an Olympic team, or a World Championships team, you know, and and the fairness and accessibility of having standards that athletes can chase and then qualify for a meet and then have a qualifying meet. Um, that that's beautiful in a sense. And then there's the other way of the view of you know. The goal is to uh, win medals at the Olympic Games, so we should have kind of a, a discretionary policy where we just select our three best athletes for the event, or you know, in skiing, whether it's five or six or whatever the allotment is, that, that we just select them, and it's based off of a um, a a broader set of athletic accomplishments, right? A base of three, four years of of achievements. I understand both those sides of those. And then there's something kind of somewhere in the middle, maybe like Athletics Kenya, where they select one and the other two spots are open. To be honest, I think that actually might be the way to go, potentially, especially if you've got 
I, I don't like it because it's still going to make it really political. But if you want to try and combine them, you know, you have to have a way where, where, hey, these two spots are open. We have the right to choose the third spot. And that way, if you have someone who places fourth or fifth and it's it's sort of a fluke performance, you know, the governing body can can select them anyway. And you still say, hey, you came into this race knowing there's really only two guaranteed spots. We're going to select the other one. I would be okay living with that. So, but I was thinking about all the com- the complexities of this too, where is the goal when you're selecting for an Olympic team, should it be <clears throat> um, who are the three best athletes, who are the three athletes that give us the best chance to win medals, or who are the, um, who are the most deserving athletes to go? And all three of those, although you think they might all be relate or you know kind of the same thing they're not because if you think about it the best athletes if you if you're defining the best athletes to me that's sort of like saying well even that could be split up like who's the best right now you know donovan brazier clearly isn't the best right now he might be hurt right at this very moment but if you're talking who's the best like you have to do you do have to define those terms brazier has the american record no one in our country is faster than him. So by that standard, he would be the best athlete in the, in, in the field and in our country. So we should select him. Um, if you're defining best as though, you know, on this day, who is the very best, you know, then you, you probably wouldn't. And if you're saying who is the best, as in who's going to give us the best chance to win a medal at the Olympics, then then you it starts to get complicated because with the, the brazier again you'd have to go well his body of work would suggest he is but his current fitness and state of injury would say no um and so this is where i think um you know the athletes and the governing bodies they almost have to just go with the route of look <clears throat> we're going to make it about the trials is just free fair and open competition and the rules are in place, and that's what it is. You have to come. You have to place top three. Then you get to punch your ticket. We know we're not always going to be sending our, quote, unquote, best chance to win medals to this event race because something could happen. There could be a fluke performance, positive or negative, that results in an, a certain athlete going. But so what? Sports is about rising to the occasion, competing and bringing the best out of yourself and, and becoming – um, the best that you can be, and this is this allows the the cleanest template for that. So, and not only that, I actually do think it's it what's it what it does to the trials. It makes it it's an event in and of itself that people are engaged in. They know that well, and that's why the the trials are almost a more interesting meet than the Olympics themselves because of this. So, I think that is where they should try to probably stay is not even go the route of a Kenya where, yeah, okay, we'll have two open and you got to select one because uh, the element of fairness there, you know, and clarity to the fan and and the athletes should be um, valued so that it's accessible. Anyone can wake up. So how how, how does this work in skiing though uh, is something that I think is kind of interesting because, and this just makes it so different. You know, you can't really have like, a qualifying time standard, obviously, you know, in a certain distance uh, to make like an Olympic trials qualifying time. So how do you select who gets to even compete at the Olympic trials? They can't really just say, okay, anyone who wants to show up here can show up. Like, let's just pretend the Olympic trials and skiing were the same as in track. Okay, we're going to have all of these events. We'll have a 50K classic, a skiathlon, an interval, an interval start, and a sprint race or two. And we're going to have these events, and the top three people in each of them are going to go to the Olympics. I think that's what they should do. The next, the next question is, how do you qualify for that meet? And how do you make that accessible theoretically to anyone? Because right now, if I went up in my backyard and trained hard and ran a 1325k i would have the right to go to the olympic trials so they need something there that allows for accessibility uh, maybe it's fist points and super tours and they you have to post a certain even individual race point you know like i don't think it should be something where like yeah we're gonna take a combination of world cup results super tour results and all that because already now you've eliminated the possibility of 
uh, an individual who's kind of on their own who might be really talented to get there. Now you have to be a member of a team. You have to be able to travel to all these places. You have to have World Cup service and uh, wax techs and all that stuff at all of these meets. You know, I think like if Joe Bega Donuts is a good skier and he shows up at one super tour and dusts the field of national team members and post an incredible result, he deserves the right to show up at the Olympic trials from that one result. I think that's totally valid. And you know what? At the Olympic trials, all the national team athletes can go, we're not letting that happen again. You know, <laughs> like, because uh, it, should, it shouldn't be, well, yeah, we had this guy who beat everyone on our team by 30 seconds in an interval start, but, you know, he hasn't raced any other meets. No, duh, because you don't even know who he is. Like, and he doesn't, he's not supported. And I think the thing that skiers might push back, go, well, would that ever even happen? Well, no, it wouldn't happen in today's ski world, but that's exactly the problem. Because in order to even do that, you, you would have to be a big-time member of a, of a big-time club that's traveling around to Super Tours a lot. And that's the problem is we have to open up the door accessibility-wise so it's easily understood by kids who can dream big and, and push that cycle and high school kids and college kids. They need to be able to understand what would actually be required of them to get to the top level. And running, it's just really not all that hard. Like you could show an eighth grader, here's the Olympic trial standards in the 800 meters. You know, if you ever get this fast enough, you get to go to Eugene and try to punch a ticket. That is so basic and simple. It's, 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 and, and I think like, yeah, are there that many eighth graders in our country that are like, okay, there's that standard. I'm going to go train for it. Maybe not. But there's a, definitely a heck of a lot more of those kids than skiers who would be able to like explain to you how they'll make it to the Olympics. And quite frankly, the way that skiers make it to the Olympics, it's a combination of being, you know, on and the same thing who make the U.S. Olympic team. It's it's a combination. It seems of are you in good graces with the powers that be? You know, kind of in the in the in the in the um the old boys club. You know, it's part that and it's it's part World Cup performances, which is, again, dictated by if you're in good graces, because if you're not, you're not going to the World Cup ever. And then the Super Tour sort of exists out there as like, well, this is your accessibility point. I I just think if they're going to make that accessibility point, then you should be able to have like one really awesome Super Super Tour performance and have the right to go to an Olympic trials, you know, and... Does that mean we would have the potential for someone who races one super tour, shows up at the Olympic trials, and then places top three, and now they're on the Olympic team? Yeah, it does. And you might say, well, that guy's not going to survive at the Olympics. He's never done World Cups. He doesn't get that. Yeah, that's that's true. But it, what it, if, if our Olympic team is not able to fight off Joe Bega Donuts, who shows up at two races, and beats them— in an Olympic trials race and a super tour race to get to that Olympic trials race. Um, I don't care. Like, you know, like apparently all your world cup experience isn't, isn't all that meaningful then. So what I would say is it, it shouldn't, it probably wouldn't happen, you know, but it's a start of at least opening up some sort of accessibility point maybe. Um, well, that was a little bit longer on that topic than I thought I'd go on. Uh, let's dive into this next thing I wanted to mention. So I've been reading uh, lots of books uh, this summer, basically, I'm, I'm on this project. I'm doing a biography on an athlete, and so I've been reading books on how to write biography. And in addition to that, I've been reading some biographies. And somehow, I've ended up back into a place where this happens. It seems like every like 16 months in my life, I end up like totally diving into World War II type uh, stories. I think last year it was 10th Mountain Division. Yeah, oh yeah, I read a bunch of 10th Mountain Division books. That's how I got launched into World War II stuff that, at that point in my life. And this year, it's been these biographies. So one of them was on Jesse Owens, Triumph by Jeremy Schapp. And then this other one I've just started is Road to Valor. Road to Valor is the true story of World War II cyclists, or World War II Italy, the Nazis, and the cyclists who inspired a nation. Um, Gino Bartali, best known as the Italian cycling legend, who not only won the Tour de France twice, but also holds the record for the longest time span between victories. He won in 1938 and then again in 1948, and in between um, was in involved in World War II for a country, a fascist nation he did not believe in or support. <clears throat> so his rise 
is one of the rags to riches stories, you know, from peasant in Italy to world champion cyclist. And, um, and Owens is, you know, not completely different as he, you know, come coming from, um, you know, entrenched in, in the, uh, racially divided segregation America, uh, he's right in the, the thick of that from the South, moving up to the North when he moved to Ohio with his family and, and um, discovered by a middle school gym teacher, basically, who ends up training him throughout his career um, to see him win four gold medals in 1936 at the Berlin Olympics in front of Adolf Hitler, right? Who's kind of the ultimate, ultimate racist when, it, when you think of it, right? And this book sort of talks about the intersection of all of those things, Nazi propaganda, the war, Jesse Owens, the racial side of things, his talent, how these all these things, the messaging inherent inherent to all those things. But the reason I wanted to bring up this book is partially because there's just some excellent quotes. So when as I'm reading a book, I, I underline stuff. Often it's, hey, I like how they said this. I, I'm noticing things from a writing style standpoint. Sometimes I'm picking out things where it's like, oh, I should apply this to my life. And sometimes it's like, I should bring this up for the, the podcast. And I know I've missed hundreds of opportunities to bring up these things on the podcast. So I'm sorry for all you listeners who've missed out on that. But um, the first, I'll, I'll just kind of page through the book and my stars that I have. There, there, there's some quotes that I think are pr- kind of fascinating because the thing that stuck out to me was how Jesse Owens handled the press and how athletes in general handled the press compared to today. But first, um, one of the one of the crazy athletic feats at the Big Ten invite. This was 1935 when Owens set four world records in a matter of 45 minutes, and the broad jump record he set would stand for 25 years, which is an eon at the time. So that was kind of something that was crazy at the Big Ten meet. He set set records in the hundred, the two hundred, the long jump, and the 200 hurdles, 220 yard hurdles. Um, they also, he also technically sent two additional records because his 200 meter dash and 200 meter hurdles times were, um, would have been faster because despite the fact the metric distance is about four feet shorter than the Imperial distance, he ran the Imperial events faster than anyone had ever run the metric events. So he technically actually set more uh, records. And at in Athens in 2004, 69 years after that Big Ten meet, his long jump would have placed him ninth place. And this is how he handled this, right? After after setting all these world records to Alan's, Elvin Silverman of the Cleveland Plain Dealer in a phone interview, he, uh, <clears throat> he said, I want to tell you something. If you don't think I'm getting swell-headed I really believe I can run the 100-yard dash in 9.3 seconds. I'm not bragging, but I really did get a bad start. <laughs> Swell-headed. So, but essentially, right, he, he didn't have a good start. He set the world record anyway, or he tied the world record, actually. And and so he's all, all frustrated. He's like, man, if I'd gotten a better start, you wouldn't have even believed. I could have gone faster. And, and so the way Owens kind of expresses his there's still more left in the tank sentiment is, uh, I just want you to know, I want to tell you something, okay? But if, you, but please don't think I'm getting swell-headed. So keep that one, uh, LeBron, in your back pocket if you're thinking of um, some other good quotes. Okay, so then it goes back in time in the book to when he's in middle school and this conversation he has with his gym teacher. He notices Jesse Owens is just freak of nature and, and super fast, and then this conversation ensues. How would you like to be on the track team when you get into high school? That's the coach. I'd like that plenty, Jesse said. He had noticed the coach watching him. He had hoped that he would make him an offer. Well then, Riley said, you'll have to do more than we do in gym class. Are you willing? Yes, sir, Jesse said. (laughs) Riley explained that if Jesse agreed, he would spend about 90 minutes every day after school learning the finer points of running. Unaccustomed to the attention of adults other than his parents, Jesse was thrilled to have someone paying so much attention to him and simply kept nodding. Well then, see you tomorrow, Jesse, Riley said and walked away. In his eagerness to run, Jesse had forgotten that he could not train after school. He had a job delivering groceries and another working in a greenhouse. This is kind of crazy, too. They're so poor, um, and Jesse's like a middle school kid, right? And I love the the innocence of the conversation coming forward where, how would you like to learn about track, son? Oh, I'd find that mighty swell. 
Okay, are you willing to come in early before gym class or after school? Yes, sir. And then just willingly obey. This is this like, uh, it just shows the patriarchal, is that the right word? Maybe it's not. But the, the parental structure, innate, in, 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 not innate, taught well to kids at this time where, you know, an authority figure shows you attention. You feel honored because of that. And people, I think, do actually have some innate sense of that, even if they're not raised to respect elders or look up to people, right? If you're a child, uh, just a little kid, and, and an adult smiles at you, right? Your teacher smiles at you. You do, like, have this connection. Oh, wow, I feel noticed. And so there's some of that that exists. Uh, but but also but the but the level of being taught, you know that these people have something to give you, respect your elders, obey orders, right? And, and it's it's for your own good. That's definitely lost in society. And I think the the young people today tend to think that part. And I think part of the reason for this is they sort of see that as like the this arbitrarily placed obey your elders and do what they tell you to do. Like it, it's not actually something that is there for their benefit. This is how really rules are just operate in the universe too. And in in like religious spheres if we're if we're bringing that in, you know I got my skeologian cup, I guess I can do that. I've been learning a lot actually in these sermons about how like some people would view the Bible as just this like ruthless set of commands, right? Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, and it's kind of meant to prevent you from having fun. Really, let's just go along with me here if 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 God actually did create the earth and he is all powerful and he's given in and he loves his people that he's created, right? Let's just assume those things play along with me. And he's given clear revelation. And he said, here's how you ought to live your life. Here is the reality about the world. This is how the world functions, right? And I'm in control of it. So I'm sorry if you don't like it, but this is just how it is. Then it would make sense that when he gives commands to people, Hey, you shall not do this right? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. All those things. He's not just setting up these dumb rules for no good. He's setting up rules that will bring prosperity to people. And it will go well with you when you do those things. This is the created order. This is how I've created the universe to be. So when you do these things, it benefits you. And our natural human tendency, of course, is to slide away from that and push back because we are sinful at heart. And that's why it feels like some of these things like obeying your elders or listening to people or obeying any authority or or not cheating or lying or doing those things where it's like, oh, I feel tempted to do that. Why is that? Well, it's because we we have that innate, innately we're evil. We want to pull away from that. But that doesn't make that command less beneficial for us. And I, that's just kind of what I thought, I think, here where it's like, oh, wow, look at this example of Owen's conversation. And it's like, that's so lost in today's culture. Like, no, I shouldn't say no, but but few kids today, you know, if you if you if they were placed in this position, wouldn't really thought that. And when you think of of the most talented kids, take like LeBron James' son, right, Bronny. If like a pot-bellied gym teacher was like, I see you have lots of athletic talent, son. I can teach you how to play ball. Do you want to come after gym and I'll show you how to shoot free throws? Like, no, right? Now, where is Bronny right now? He's at Sierra Canyon, right? The most prestigious private school outside LA, California area. Like, in essence, he has been like kind of groomed by that program, right? Well, Brownie, your dad's LeBron. You're super ultra talented. Why don't you come play for us? We've handpicked every best athlete from the entire country. And they're all by the, you know, former NBA stars players. And, and they are okay sending their kid away to this, you know, 80 grand a year school. And so you're, you can be part of that inside club too. Well, of course, Bronny's going to, yeah. All right, cool. Like I'll do that. I'll follow you to the, I'll follow you to the grave now. You know, that's the culture that we have is like, if you're, if you're a prodigy, you want to be toted and treated ultra special by the really higher ups, you know, and here we just have the innocent, like, I mean, it, it is kind of remarkable. Riley, this middle school teacher, like knows enough about track to to really actually bring out most of Jesse Owens' talent, and you know, like I said, he followed him along all the way through Berlin, and and that's a remarkable story. And uh, it, again, it's kind of the equivalent of just your completely average standard gym teacher who spots a Steph Curry, trains him, and follows him all the way through Golden State Warrior times, and 
that just not doesn't happen now, you know, at the highest levels of sport. It's, hey, this guy's discovered, send him away to the prestigious camp place or the prestigious high school or the prestigious AAU team. And 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 then the kid feels like the kid is has all the power. They're like, oh, you're not worthy of my services. Right. I, I, it's kind of an interesting thing. Okay, next point in the book I want to bring up that this one I found kind of fascinating is that uh, Owens at 18, he it, he goes to what is kind of a professional meet. Um, let's see where, meet officials, fall of 1930, oh, 1932. Yeah, 18. He had to the point where it was not unreasonable for him to think he might qualify for the American Olympic team. So he's still high school. Uh, June 11th, he ran 100 meters in 10.3 seconds, breaking the world record by Paddock, who had established in 1921. Tailwind was too strong, though. But he got qualified for the semifinal Central Olympic track and field tryouts, Northwestern University. Okay, so now he's exposed to world-class competition for the first time. Uh, he's going to f- run up against Tolan, who Eddie Tolan, who is the uh, reigning Olympic champion. He first black man to win two Olympic gold medals. He's 23. Um, of course, you know, Tolan's not paying much attention to East Tech High School's Jesse Owens. So, um, racing against the best, he basically, he did not qualify for the Olympic trials finals in California. So this is fascinating, right? It's kind of a disappointing moment in his career. He's only 17, 18 years old. And here's kind of his response, which I, I think is fascinating. It says, still he was disappointed and embarrassed. When Alvin Silverman, same guy, reached him after the meet, Owen said, I haven't got the heart to see Mr. Riley. That's his coach. He must be terribly ashamed of me. I don't know what was the matter. I ran as fast as I could, and Lord knows I tried, but I just didn't have it. I'm going to work my heart out from now on, I bet ya. Owens even felt that he had let Silverman down, the reporter. It was nice for you to try and make me feel good, he told the reporter who had followed his high school career closely, but I'll bet you're as much ash- as you're as much ashamed of me as anybody else. That's incredible. Think about athletes who get hyped up and ballooned because of their prodigious talent in any sport and they're on the biggest stage and they fail how many of them humbly say you know i'm so sorry that i let all of you down i'm sorry i let my, i'm so sorry i let my coach down i can't i don't even have the heart to face him first of all now coaches we have who step in and shield these athletes right they don't even let them talk to the press some of the times there's sort of chopped up comments they're they're very hidden they don't they don't say what's actually going on and maybe that's the best way to do it in today's world because the media circus has created such a a awful environment for handling this that it actually is better to kind of shield these athletes but the point is is yeah in today's world we have coaches who shield them or we have very immature young athletes who just kind of splat you know um splat things out on under the microphone <laughs> and it's it, what comes across is excuses it's attacks uh unfairness uh feel, feelings of that and owens just kind of says like i'm embarrassed because i let you all down i let my coach down lord knows i tried i mean even just his these are his actual words quote for quote like nothing that extends beyond just the raw reality we're not we're not going into drama that's internal and being kind of mysterious about it we're not alluding to things on social media or conversations with right which obviously none of that exists in owen's time but even and because of that he has he can't go to those places and those spaces uh and so he doesn't allude to any of that he doesn't try to make excuses for himself it's just this is what happened i I put everything on the line. I poured my entire heart into it and I failed and I feel like I let you down. I did everything I could. You know, this was all that I could and I'm very disappointed. I'm just simply heartbroken by this. Um, and, and it's just kind of fascinating that that in the agony and defeat, we don't see people handle things with that much composure. And, and then even to extend the hand to, to the reporter, right? Like you could tell this is someone on the cusp of greatness. He's been followed in high school, but he's already almost set a world record. Like... To be right now, if there was a high school athlete at that level who is maybe the best in the world at his sport, like take a soccer player, right, who is 17 years old and everyone's like, this guy is not only going to be the best, he is the best right now. 
And then that soccer player, you know, fails to make his nation's World Cup team. I was like, he would not come out and go to like the first report and be like, I just, I really appreciate you giving me a platform here to speak because, you know, it's just, you're making me feel special by following me around and asking me questions. And that's basically what Owen said here, right? Like, thank you. Thank you, Elvin Silverman, for following me around and, and kind of making, following my career closely. It's nice for you to try to make me feel good. And But I bet, you, I bet deep down you're disappointed in me too. You know, just, it's fascinating. I circled this word with Owens, an icy selfishness that he had going into the Olympics. Um, I don't know if I'll get into that. I, it, I, the reason there was, you know, after that Big Ten meet, there, it was real. We're still like 15 months out from the Berlin Olympics. So when you go out and set six world records, essentially, but four official ones, um, and then you, you like that means nothing for your career at that time. Like gold medals at the Olympics are what matters. And for Owens, he's got to navigate a lot. He has to stay healthy. He has to qualify for the team and then have make sure nothing happens at the actual Olympics to, to kind of satisfy what is at this point, just an absolute foregone conclusion. And, and um, I think that's a, there's a lesson there in terms of his level of focus day by day, not getting too far ahead of himself, you know, but but at the same time of not getting too far ahead of himself, also keeping his eye on like there is this kind of thing out there. And it's if I don't show up on this one day, 14 months from now, none of this is going to matter. I think that's a fascinating balance and dichotomy of of two things existing at once where he has to see the far off goal. But then also approach each. If if you if you only focus and are, are on that far off goal, you're just gonna be overwhelmed, and that's where injury, mental out, being psyched out, kind of takes place. And so Owens is like, "Yep, there's the far out goal. Now I'm gonna come back and have this icy selfishness on taking care of my body, taking care of my rest, taking care of my training, and just like monastically approaching day by day by day until I get to that day." And when you start to think about how how much more difficult this would have been from a eating travel standpoint, right? Where, where these guys are taking trains to all these meets across the country. Like Owens would leave his wife and be gone for like four months just to travel domestically and, and hop on a train and, and, you know, bump around 45 miles an hour for 12 hours and then show up at a facility with a cinder track. And, you know, it's like the level of, discomfort there compared to what we can complain about it's just not even remotely close and even for the olympics well actually the olympics was crazy right he left his in ohio train ride to new york actually train ride to some of these other places you know traveled a few meets and and over the course of four months ended in new york for the olympic trials and won all his events there and and like in new york went right from there onto the boat to germany you know, because and think about it. Like today, we go. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you go back home? You know, before you leave, it's like you just can't. Like you can't even do that, right? It'd be a, what's an hour and a half uh, plane ride for us now. Be unthinkable for Owens at that time. Uh, little stuff like that. So then, you, then you're on a boat for two and a half weeks, and Owens was seasick, and he couldn't really eat much, and and he was you know trying to stay loose. Just think about the training. The, the lack of training that would take place on that boat ride you know for sprinters and stuff you you would you would think like you could actually kind of work that out where you're you're staying loose you're doing like body weight stuff some explosive things you could do a lot of drills but like as a distance runner just like it'd be like it's like yeah two and a half weeks of just nothing like i wonder if they actually did like run laps around the boat at some point i mean i that's what you'd like have to do you know, it's for, but you, oh man, your level of sharpness would just be totally crap. Um, but yeah, then focusing through all those expected trials and then being at your best when it counts the most. I just think if you've ever traveled at all, like it just had a, even one day or two days where you were trying to go like cross country. So you're flying like the kind of the equivalent, like a Seattle to New York or, you know, Tennessee to LA, Florida to LA, that sort of a thing. If you've ever been involved in something like that or, or moving even, right? Packing up all your crap and driving across the country. I've done, I've done all these things now at this point in my life. And I just like can think about even if I had to compete later in the week, flying, right? Like flying. That's, that's very high tech. Like I would be at, 
at such a low level of focus and such a high level of mental exhaustion and all of that. I don't know, like maybe the adrenaline kicks in a little bit, but like that works for a week or two, but months of that, like this is Owen's life. 14 straight months of doing some of that. It just gives you some perspective on the resi- resiliency, how good we have it. And I know it is rough, you know, taking this into skiing even, where you've got um, athletes who have to, you know, say goodbye to their families November 1, come back April 1st practically, right? Like that is crazy even, but but just imagine the level of difference. Because even in that situation, a lot of skiers are able to maybe fly home for Christmas even. And, and if they don't, you can Skype, Zoom, text. You can communicate directly to your family any moment of the day, essentially. Um, and I, I just marvel at, like, the difference. And sometimes, actually, this is what brings me to kind of revere the athletes of the 20s and 30s and even beforehand, so a little bit slightly after. Once you start to get 60s and 70s, I'm a lot less like feel feel this way about athletes because 60s 70s even it's starting to be a little more modern day but the the olympic skiers of the 20s and 30s the olympic track athletes of the 20s and 30s marathoners cycling is just bonkers um and that's what we're going to get to next all those sports lacking that modern technology is huge and then the things that we have to deal with that we complain about whether it's travel or mechanical issues on our equipment and all that stuff um i i'm just fascinated that these athletes put up with that. And in addition to that, because athletics wasn't as big, like how they also kind of had to just survive money, food, shelter wise in these various nations. Uh, that's, that's a whole nother element that kind of comes in. And then to, just to top it all off world war two, you know, um, you know, perhaps one of the most, most dramatic and influential events in all of human history. Um, okay, so the relation, this show, we're talking about athletes in World War II. And after this break here, I'm going to discuss maybe a more amazing story even than Owen's book, and that is Gino Bartali, the Italian cyclist. So I haven't finished the book, but just going to give you a few things I find incredibly fascinating. Okay, so I'm about 100 pages into this book and not going to give it all away, but just going to pick up one little anecdote, a series of events that happened to highlight with Gino Bar- Bartali. Bartali was grew up in the 20s and 30s in Italy, uh, poor, a peasant. Their family didn't have uh, hardly anything. He started working at a bike shop, uh, was going on rides, loved to cycling with his brother. The, the, the two were inseparable. <clears throat> and um, he was he worked super hard to get his first bike, and then once he got it, he was riding it like crazy. His dad was very against his biking, just out of a safety thing. He thought, um, it, you know, nothing could really come from it. It was a waste of time, and it was ultimately dangerous. At this time, cycling was already blowing up pretty big in Italy, so to be a cycling hero was, um, you know, kind of that far out, like working for NASA or being the president of the United States would be here um, but if you could make it, you know, you were a, a very big celebrity. And of course, at this time, Mussolini was coming to power as well. So the, the conflict of interest was, or I guess not conflict, well, I don't know, conflict of interest is the wrong word, but Mussolini wanted to uh, bring about a renewal of exercise and fitness in Italy. Because at the time when he was kind of coming to power, Italy was uh, very weak, old, unhealthy. And so he kind of instigated this propaganda of being strong and athletic. And even him himself, you know, was would like to get photographed with his shirt off and working out and things like this. Uh, I don't think he was really a super fit man. So kind of ironic. But anyway, the push for Italian athletes to be very successful on the world stage was seen as necessary in order to prove to the world how great fascism was and how strong and powerful it was. So there was a vested interest for the government for Italian athletes to do well and Italian cyclists to do well, especially in the Tour de France. So that's kind of all the backstory. 30, 1936, I'll fast forward ahead. Bartali basically got talented, and he was a good racer. So in thirty six, he was roughly, what, 22 years old, 23 years old, something like that at the time. <clears throat> Won the Giro d'Italia, the Tour of Italy. Next year, he sets out with this ambitious goal to become the first person to win the, the Giro and the Tour in the same year. So he wins the Giro again. Going into the Tour, he takes the lead, has a yellow jersey about seven stages in, and then he has a terrible crash. And 
the crash is awful. You know, he's got skin all over the road. He's clutching his kidneys and a lot of pain. He manages to finish the stage in just the most gutty fashion ever. And then the government proceeds in the following stages to force him to quit from the race. And this would be something that um, he would never forgive them for interfering. He was crying. He had such great dreams for that tour. Um, all of them went up in smoke. The doctor didn't originally, this is crazy too, originally the doctor didn't want him to race. Doctors didn't want him to race the tour because after the Giro, he got pneumonia. So he really shouldn't have even been in it. And then Italy's like, you have to be in the tour, the government, right? Like you're, you're the best cyclist in the world. You need to win this for Italy for the fascist government. And he was kind of at the time a, a Catholic. So the Catholics were standing against the fascist government. So they did not like that at all. That he was a Catholic, so at first the two, the doctors are like, you know, you shouldn't ride. And then he, the government says, makes him ride. And then that the government pulls him when he wants to keep going, and he just could never forgive him for it. Going into the next year, he he thirty eight. He has the same goal to win the Giro, win the Tour the same year. But the the he has this meeting with the Italian Cycling Federation, um, uh, and the the national sports directors. Uh, they're all they're all members of Mussolini's regime. And they determine an Italian has to win the Tour. So they're going to pull him out of the Giro just so he can focus fully on winning the Tour de France. Okay? Now, um, skipping ahead, <clears throat> and this is the Tour de France. He does actually win. But I want to bring up, since I was reading quotes from athletes, right, and how great it is. This is something that I thought was maybe the most epic athlete quote I've come across from my, from my early 1930s and 40s reading. This is um, after commanding win. Oh, yeah. So when he, he, he's way ahead in front of the tour, it's coming cl to a close, and the journalists don't really have much to talk about, but they want They just start doing stories kind of about Gino's personality, his life off the bike. So inevitably, starts to focus on his religion, okay? How he often ate with a small statue of Mary watching him. Gino tried to keep his calm. His appetite for being teased had only diminished since he was a young boy. So to the French press, he says this, Sir, this is to a specific journalist, Sir, my faith is a personal private matter. It shouldn't interest anyone, he rebuked one reporter. Judge me on the road, speak about my race, about my gears and my weakness, my weaknesses. That should suffice. Wow. that That's a pretty powerful stance for an athlete who is... Um, wants to say, you know what, let's keep the stories here for once. If you want to talk about me, judge me by what I do out here competing, speak about the race I've given you. You can talk about my decisions, my gears, my weaknesses. That should be enough. I feel like in track and field, in skiing, in all sports, our athletes could use just a little bit more of that. On my last show, I made a critique of NBC for their short segment that they played before Allison Felix's 400-meter final. I'm not sure if you saw it, but it was about two minutes. They played it before the race. Clearly, this had been pre-recorded, edited, and uh, produced maybe weeks before the trials. It was Felix on a stage, all dramatic, talking to her daughter. They showed highlights, pictures of all these things. My first critique is that it was very difficult to determine what the thesis of this was, the theme of this produced segment. It was hard. And I think NBC missed a golden opportunity to utilize Felix for a message that would have been extremely valuable to society and to highlight something that's kind of an injustice in the sport. And that is that for young women, the decision to become a mom is a death sentence to their career. And this is one reason, I believe, why we see abortions at a high level um, in the female sprint and distance community is because of this. They know that. And shoe companies are just brutal. And Felix is a great example of this, right? Comes into the sport as a 17-year-old, maybe the most talented high school sprinter of all time. Nike swoops her up. She makes multiple Olympic teams, wins all these gold medals. Who knows what the family planning situation is for Felix during this time? I'm not going to speculate on it. Uh, but what we do know is that the second Nike determined 
that she was not worth it to them financially, she was gone. And obviously, the decision to become a mom was a huge part of that. And athletes across this sport are faced with this difficult decision all the time, and it's unfair. And Felix has actually, in the last couple of years, really been a bastion of hope in this realm because she has proven, and now by making this team, proven that you can become a mom and you can find a company that takes care of you and you can come back and still compete at a high level. That's the story that they missed on. I think they should have highlighted it. Instead, it was this strange conglomeration of, um, yes, female empowerment, but they kind of blended it with civil rights. And in doing that, made that message unclear, sort of vague. Uh, Black Lives Matter was kind of blended in here. It was just kind of a mixture mess of um, uh, sort of messaging that I'm not sure if they were trying to appease a certain audience, but I found it just unclear to follow. And quite frankly, they, they blew an opportunity. Okay, that's the the first thing. The second thing, though, I think is speaks to something even greater. How many of you are out there watching the Olympic trials and feel like you're watching sort of like American Idol meets um, the NFL, right? You've got you've got sports. It's like The Bachelor. You've got this sporting event, but it's almost as if the stories and the narratives that the um, broadcasting companies are trying to just promote so loudly, it's like they've been pre-manufactured, right? Here's the narrative that has to happen. You, you picture it. Well, what if someone else wins? No, it's going to be about Felix. Look at Quinera Hayes. Her story was phenomenal, and it was a cool story, and she won the 400. She deserved, because of winning, that her narrative should have been highlighted and that that could have been a part of it. You wouldn't even have to have ignored Felix, but just imagine if a day before the trials, Felix had decided, you know, um, I'm, I'm not going to run. I just have decided not to. You know, like, what would that have done to the NBC segment? I suppose they would have pulled it, and I suppose, you know, those in the, in the work in this business, they know they've got several of these prepackaged things ready to go, some of them that they don't use. But I just think we don't need to um, we don't need to fancify. We don't need to manufacture narratives in this sport covering it. Okay, they're there. The stories are great. The Olympic trials is one of the most dramatic events because of the highs and the lows. If you analyze the annals of Olympic history as a whole, okay, you don't have to manufacture these stories. The incredible tragedies and the incredible triumphs are there for the taking. And this is what journalists have to do. They have to realize that. Um, that their job is to come in prepared, know the backstories in general of everything that's going on, record the events as they happen, and then, this is the difficult part, they need to take those events which do not happen in a vacuum, okay? They're not like just separate events going on that we can be we can be neutral in recording. I don't believe in that. But what they need to do is take their perspective and create the narrative around the events that happen. We hear this word narrative and it has a negative connotation in news today. And that's because narratives seem to drive what gets told. And and I, I would like to just caution people, whether they're on the right or the left in this in this argument, okay? Events don't happen in a vacuum. Okay, life doesn't take place in a in in a vacuum. So you can't be neutral and just giving us raw data and giving us the stories. Okay, there are stories out there. The beauty is that we have multiple journalists and multiple publications at these events like the trials. They give us different perspectives. They choose to look at things. They have a different ability or way that they piece together these events and create their unique narrative. Um, but what but what we're seeing happen right now is they've determined the narrative before the events have even taken place. That's an injustice. That's a disservice. It's completely unfair. There there are athletes here who are who are winning, doing amazing things. They're just not getting covered because the networks have decided here's the prepackaged narratives that are going to sell. That's a tragedy. We're missing out, uh, and and we need to kind of fight back. And this is why I love Let's Run is Let's Run comes in and they do their due diligence and research, like I'm sure the NBC people do too. Okay, they come in, they do that, but they don't. Their primary agenda isn't what's the best story that's going to sell. Their primary agenda is serving the running community. So whoever wins, that's going to drive whose narrative gets to be highlighted. Okay, and I like that. I like how they they think critically, they think fearlessly. They're not worried about just making a buck. 
um, in that way. Maybe they are in other ways. I don't know. But I feel like they cover the stories and they do cover it in a narrative style. That's important. Okay, we don't have this Victorian biographical style where in the Victorian age, right, they covered people's biographies by just recording raw data and it's very uninteresting and it's actually not sensible because no one life, again, no one's life's events happen in a vacuum. Same thing goes true for an event like this at the Olympic trials. Okay, there's not just a neutral way you could present this. They create the stories that are there, but they're not coming in with pre-manufactured stories. That's why I love it. I feel like I get a true view of at least Jonathan Galt or Weldon's or Robert's view of the landscape of the sport it's fun and then i can kind of use it to craft my own viewpoint of the sport too as a fan so that's what the fans want Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cedar Skier Podcast. Go to cedarskier.com. Go to cedarskier.com. Check out other episodes and articles as well. Keep on striving, people.